0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotak, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Guyana First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English Department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: This interview of Chris Creighton Kelly by Lenore Gijig was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council recognized the imperfect knowledge transmission methods of the colonial system and particularly the ways it has tended to fragment non-Western knowledges and privilege the textual over the oral. Using a combination of traditional and contemporary practices, it brought together a small council of mostly BIPOC senior practitioners in the contemporary arts to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, stories of the past, present, and future, stories in cyclical time, community formations they've experienced, community formations they remember, how they understand the work that needs to be done, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. Lenore Gijic is a citizen of the Saugeen Ojibwe Nation on the Saugeen Bruce Peninsula and resides in the home of the Chippewas of the Nawash Unceded First Nation. Lenore is a storyteller, poet, award-winning author, a naturalist, a mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. Her long-awaited first collection of poetry, Running on the March Wind, was published in 2015. Currently, she works delivering programs that teach about the natural and the cultural history of the peninsula and the Great Lakes, and helps area visitors to better understand their connections to the land and to the water. Chris Creighton Kelly is an interdisciplinary artist, a writer, and a cultural critic who was born in the UK of South Asian-slash-British heritage. His artworks have been presented across Canada and in India, Europe, and the United States of America. Chris is presently interested in questions of absence in the art discourses of the Western world. Whose worldview is unquestioned? Who has power? Who does not? Chris also works as a consultant to many of Canada's art organizations, institutions and agencies. He is currently co-director of Primary Colours. Find here in this wonderful discussion, themes of equity and diversity within Canadian lit from the 1980s until now, a discussion of the term settler and colonizer, a beautiful rumination on quote, the agendas of grievance, topics of censorship, freedom of speech, cultural appropriation, a cross-cultural discussion between tricksters of indigenous South Asian and a bit on Scandinavian descent, a discussion of home and homeland, land, language, culture, and art, and the genealogy of these four relations, a beautiful discussion on work of the head versus work of the cardiac, a riveting discussion on political correctness and alliance work, and a delving into the roots of political correctness coming from the chinese revolution and how that may change now in the contemporary age with such things as cancel culture and finally a wonderful ending topic on the importance of remembering
2: hello 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 Chris how are you oh
3: <laughs> I'm fine really. I'm
2: uh, okay. that's that's good uh, this is our first time meeting
3: right it is.
2: and our, our first time having uh, our first time talking yeah
3: one on yeah
2: one on one yes now um, now uh, uh, we were doing a lot of uh, a lot of there was a lot of discussion this week about um bringing about cultural change in uh, uh, the Canadian literature scene. And um, uh, so my work um, was uh, on cultural appropriation and uh, establishing the Racial Minority Writers' Committee within the larger um, uh, Writers' Union of Canada. So... um, and you were working in a different, in a different sphere or a different area at that time. Could you tell me about that time?
3: Sure. So we're talking the late 80s and the early 90s. Is Correct. That? Yeah. Well, um, like many people in the arts, I was doing many things. I had my own artistic practice. I was living on the West Coast in Vancouver. I was organizing in communities around some of the same kinds of issues that you're talking about. I was part of a group of um, mostly South Asian artists and Indigenous artists called Local Color, although there were people from other backgrounds as well. But one of the things I did, and I think it's the the sense of your question, uh, is I went to work at the Canada Council during that period. And when I went to work there, um, I worked in the explorations section of the council, which was probably not probably it was the most open section. Uh, say, to Indigenous art practices, uh, practices of artists of color. And we used to jokingly call it the garbage can of uh, the council because everything that came to the council would be uh, pushed into the sections. And most of the sections, not, not most, all of them were run by white people who didn't understand a lot of this. So it's like, if you don't understand something, just send it to Exploration.
2: So oh, my gosh. Because
3: <laughs> we had the most open criteria and we could bend rules and we were about that. and Plus, we were regionally based.
2: So. mm mm-hmm. And you probably had more open minds
3: I think we probably did it's difficult to know that for sure but I think we did and we had a section head who had an open mind and who herself had come out of the multiculturalism bureaucracy of of Canada and then worked at at the Canada Council Mm -hmm. in any case I don't totally like talking about this because I often feel that it's kind of centering myself in in an incomplete kind of way But the work was about going in there and working for explorations and then along with some of my um, white colleagues, identifying just how white the Canada Council was, 225 employees. I was the only one who was not white. Um, And actually, there's a great story that uh, I can tell you that when the committees that I set up, Indigenous committee, Native committee was called at the time, and the um, called the Multicultural, the Racial Equity Committee, would arrive at the Canada Council to the reception, they'd be sent to the UNESCO floor. Because after all, why would people who look like this, black people, indigenous people, that have anything to do with the arts, they wouldn't go to the Canada Um, Council. So they'd send them to the UNESCO floor. And then they'd have to be kind of rescued there, you guys, this is not where you go, come back down. to the. So it was the beginnings of the Council trying to understand that... Art practices were not just Western European. Number one, there were people on this territory for millennia who actually made art and actually needed to be taken seriously in their practices. And then there were people who had come from other continents in the world other than Europe, and they were also practicing artists. Um, And so that was my job to begin that process. And because of the work I did, but also because of the work that had been previously done in so many communities. And all of the people who worked at the council after me, the council has slowly changed over the years.
2: I know in one of our earlier uh, talks, you, you mentioned uh, an incident where you had uh, invited a, a number of uh, Aboriginal uh, Native artists. Could you? Tell, could retell you, the story for
3: the Could you the retell record? that? Sure, yes. Sure. Um, well it was a it was a, a memorable moment and a historic moment um, the council had started by saying we'll have a multiculturalism committee at the council that's how we'll deal with the question i hate framing it this way but i'm just trying to be shorthand the questions of difference and different practices in the arts um, and to which i and I, to which i responded this is not going to work we already have an internal committee like that and you cannot have a bunch of white people on a committee inside, no matter how well-meaning they are, and even no matter how knowledgeable they are, somehow uh, examine what Indigenous artists do and what that, you, you've got to reach out into communities. So I argued for, for a, a, a committee, and I was told, okay, set up a multiculturalism committee, pick people from, the, I said, that's not going to work either. Um, and every Indigenous artist that I knew said, you, you can't, Sorry, but if that's the committee, I'm not going to join because I don't want to be lumped in in multiculturalism. You need to set up uh, the word indigenous was not used that frequently in those days, set up a Native Arts Committee. So finally, I pushed and pushed and pushed. And finally, that's what happened. So we had a Native Arts Committee uh, with five members. And then we had another committee, which also ultimately got named the uh, Advisory Committee for Racial uh, Equity or, or Equality, I think it was Richard pointed out, in the arts. It's uh, called... Um, React now is the short form for it. Anyway, and then there was a day where there was a desire for the committees to talk to the board, which was a tricky business because boards are where the power is, as you know. Um, But we insisted, and, and the director was kind of cool with it, although she was worried a little bit. And the chairperson of the board, whose name was Alan Gottlieb, who had been previously the ambassador to the United States, he agreed to do it. So anyway, the day comes. And the board is meeting at the Canada Council. I think they meet quarterly. And the two committees, uh, there was one member of the committee, Margot Kane, who I deliberately had put on both committees so she could be kind of a liaison between the two committees. But the first time the entire two committees had ever met. So you had in a room, uh, I think there were nine people on the other committee, five, 14 plus me, 15, 16, 17 people, um, all of whom were Indigenous or of colour. Um, meeting for the first time, and that's, as you know, always a powerful moment when that happens, discussing issues that are in common and those that are not in common. And people were burning sweet grass and incense, and this kind of powerful energy was in in the space, which is essentially a, a white arts kind of space. And I think that unnerved some people and people were coming down the hallway between our meeting and the board meeting going, what's going on in here? What are all these smells? Are you going to set off the sprinklers? You know. I'm oh, sure, I know. I'm yes. sure you've been there before. And for for reasons, I guess, that were about pride and identity and making statements, people, And because they were meeting the board, people had chose to dress up a little bit. So mm-hmm. that was also kind of like, you know, why are you wearing these clothes and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, the moment comes. And it's clear that it's going to be uh, historic because the board, I suspect there were people on the board never spoken to an Indigenous person in their entire lives. Um, And then there were people on the committees who perhaps had never been in the power structure in that way. So this was a kind of an interesting meeting. So this is the part of the story I think you want me to get to. So the idea was that um, the members of the two committees would introduce themselves and say a few words like typically happens and then the board members would do the same. So, and we would have lunch, and somehow through this mingling, the council would change. But it was a good thing to do, and and education going on both ways. So my job was to introduce people and then invite them to say a few words, and I had talked to everybody ahead of time about roughly how we would do it. The first person I chose to introduce was the senior member of the Indigenous Committee, who happened to be Alanisa Bomswin, who's one of the most powerful people I've ever met in my whole life in so many ways. So I said, (laughs) Alanise, pointed towards her. She stood up from the lunch table, which I didn't expect that she would do. And I thought, oh, she's just being Alanise. She's going to say what she has to say standing up. But she didn't do that. She stood up. She pushed her chair back under the table. It was clear that she was going to take all the time and space that she wanted to. And she began to sing in the language of her people, which I think is uh, Wabeniki, I think that's the language that she speaks. And she did it powerfully, and I can't remember whether she had a drum or not. I think not. I think she just sang. And then she proceeded to talk about her people and what she was doing there. And she must have taken what I imagined would be a minute. She probably took 10 minutes to do that. And people were both within our committees, but more so from the board, kind of stunned because I'm sure nothing like that had ever happened before in those hallowed halls. But what Alanis did by doing that was reveal who she was and the power that she had. But she also played a kind of leadership role for everybody else, and she encouraged everybody else without saying a word, because that's how powerful she is. And the next person to speak was Tom Hill, who then proceeded to get up from his seat, push his chair Whoa. under the table and speak in his language and so like that. Then there was Margot Kane. And we went through the whole indigenous uh, committee, Carol Geddes and Aloktu um, and then the Committee of Racial Equality. So the punchline of this story, and I think why you wanted me to tell it is, by the time all the committee members got up out of their chairs and sang or danced or did whatever they did and described themselves, The entire time of the meeting, which was over two hours, and the lunch, was taken up. And the board members didn't have any time to introduce themselves. So in one simple, powerful gesture, and momentarily and temporarily, I don't want to say that it's more than what it was, Alanis managed to invert the power relationships in in the most. And if you know her, which I know you do, um, she did it in the most charming of ways because Mm -hmm. of who she is.
2: Right, so she took charge of the space.
3: Precisely. Yeah. Precisely.
2: That's, that's good. And,
3: and and inserted it without ever saying, you know, I'm on Indigenous land or any just just made it clear that indigenous presence belonged in there. If they ever needed to understand, that was the moment that they understood.
2: Oh, that's that's an awesome story. Yeah. Now how long did you work for a Canada Council?
3: in all uh, it was about 4 years um my first work was in the explorations program as i said and then this other work was as a consultant um but it was roughly bridging the time uh, 1988 89 to 92 something like that and then over the years i've continued to do other contracts with them mm-hmm. but as an actual employee it was actually a pretty short time so i don't think i could work uh, you know <laughs> continually in that place
2: yeah. Did you did you accomplish or do you feel you accomplished what you set out to Oh, you're not supposed do? to ask me that, Lenore.
3: <laughs> <laughs> of course I did not. Um, I mean, you know, this, this, these are the complicated questions, right? Yes. Um, I think in some ways I would answer yes. And since you're asking me about it, I would even say proudly so. Uh, because one of the things I did do was set up two offices, which continue to this day. In other ways, I don't feel I succeeded at all because the council is still Eurocentric. Um, Not so much indigenous artists who now have their own section, but artists of color still struggle to make what they do make sense within the frame. Um, And as I said yesterday in, in the gathering that we just had, I think the trick is to somehow make your presence dispensable. So it's not even so much about me, and that's partly where my reluctance comes from. I did this, and I did this, and I made this happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have have to be careful not to be falsely humble either, because I did do some things, Um, and make the issues that you ignite when you're in there, they stay indispensable. You have to give them staying power. So if I grade what happened at the council on that kind of meter, I think, yeah, Uh, yeah okay then it did achieve something whereas when I went to work for the Banff Center and organize a residency called race in the body politic the year after I left the council um, partly because of my own inability to make that change partly because of the way the Banff Center is decentered in the way that the Canada Council is not it's very fragmented administratively and it's a big campus Um, And even though there was a presence of Indigenous artists and artists of color, again, like at the council, in a residency for eight weeks, um, it didn't have the same kind of impact. I wasn't able to instill the organization with the values that I was trying to do. Having said that, um, that work did lead indirectly to the foundations for the Aboriginal Arts Program. Uh, There have been some changes at the BAM Center, but it's not... It's not at the center or the core of the BAM Center's mission. Um, that's what's missing. That, that Therefore, I would grade that it, I didn't succeed.
2: Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm curious about you. You talked about um, Asian um, artists and artists of color right. uh, with the Canada Council and how that one didn't quite work the way uh, it did for the, for the Native.
3: The Council, to its credit and through the leadership of so many people that led up to it and the various committees that have carried forward and the various persons uh, like Louise Prophet LeBlanc um, and others who have occupied the position of Indigenous Arts uh, coordinator, uh, manager, whatever it's called, uh, was able to create a section, CKS, carrying Knowing, Sharing, which is to the extent that A unit can be self-determining, and I have to be careful in my words. To the extent that that can happen in an institution, it's happening. So there's kind of an Indigenous Arts Council within the Canada Council, run by Steve Loft, uh, in which all of the persons who work there are Indigenous, all of the people who sit on the juries are Indigenous, and the evaluations that are being made of the work that Indigenous, are you have to be Indigenous to apply to the section, um, are being made by other Indigenous people. That doesn't mean it's trouble-free. That doesn't mean there aren't issues still to fight about. But I think at least Indigenous artists can feel that however, you know, whether they get a grant or not, it's in, it's being evaluated in a much more uh, holistic kind of way than it was 30 years ago, where it would appear at a jury and no one would have a clue.
2: Okay. Thats be- that-
3: beating what, What's that doing here? <laughs> Why is that you know?
2: Yeah, yeah. okay, but I'm still interested sure. in in the uh, Asian and Asian artists and artists of color.
3: Well, I, I think and I have to be very careful what I say right now. It's not, not because I'm afraid of insulting anyone, but because it's always dangerous to speak in generalities. I think there are many artists of color in this country, maybe even the majority of them, who are quite fine. With indigenous people finally getting a small percentage of what is their, well, it's, I don't even know what the right word is. It's more than right, it's their inherent right because of who they are and and because of, you know, of course their art practices need to be supported. And, you know, the budget for Aboriginal arts was tripled. I'd be just fine if it was quadrupled or eight times as much. So I don't think every, you know, that's why I'm nervous to say this is what artists of color think. But Mm -hmm. I do know, and when I move in communities, that sometimes there's a sense of, um, not really jealousy, but a sense of like, oh, well, you dealt with Indigenous people. Now they have their own section, and we're still begging for crumbs. Mm -hmm. So deal with us more properly. And I don't know, there's an equity office at the council, but it's kind of been diminished and weakened. And when I talk to people at the council, Oftentimes, they will give me rhetoric about, well, yeah, the Indigenous office is really important and CKS is really important, but we deal with cultural diversity throughout our institution now. So the kind of party line is that that work is done. And so, you know, do we even really need an equity office? And don't worry, you'll get a fair shake if you apply to the general programs. So when I say that, I say it with lots and lots of caveats, and I don't speak... Obviously, I don't speak for every artist of color in this country, some of whom are probably indifferent to indigenous artists, others who work with indigenous artists and support them getting the meager resources that they do, and then another minority kind of going, hey, what about us?
2: You what know? about us, yeah. And
3: especially since the TRC and reconciliation and the broader place that indigenous issues now represent in our country. However, you or I might feel about that and how we might even differ how we feel about it. The preferred other of the Canadian state is clearly now Indigenous people. And from my perspective, that's exactly how it should be. It's exactly how it should be. So if the rest of us have grievances, we'll wait, or I'll wait anyway. I you will. Speak you. Yeah, absolutely, I yeah, will. Yeah, yeah. Well,
2: you know, I'm, I'm personally, I'm concerned about those grievances because I would like to see more equity. Uh, for Asian writers and writers of color, because uh, I think what you're describing to me is a is a, a place where it's divided half and half, mainstream and uh, and indigenous.
3: Well, th- these are very complex questions, Lenore. I, I can't, I'm sorry, but I can't give you simple answers to it. I'm not a supporter of this term "settler," because I think it simplifies and dumbed down the conversation rather than complexifies it. And I appreciate you saying that. I very much appreciate you saying that. But one of the problems of Canada, which is a problem throughout the world, but since we live in the territory called Canada, is we have so many agendas of grievance that have not properly been dealt with over centuries now. And so many of them are speaking louder and louder um, that it's so complex to figure out how to deal with all of them at the same time. And it's nice and, and it's a welcoming to hear you say that you care about artists of color, as I do about indigenous artists, um, and it doesn't have to be. I also think something you just said was really important. Um, it doesn't have to be this or this. Let's try to fix everything all together. Let's try to address all of these. But if it does come down to, and it does in some circumstances, who's going to get dealt with next? Who, you know, number forty-two? It should be, in my view, it should be indigenous artists. So that doesn't mean that artists of color shouldn't be dealt with. Black artists shouldn't be dealt with. It doesn't mean that uh, folks who are part of the mad arts movement shouldn't be dealt with. In fact, in fact, they're part of equity now. It doesn't mean that people who are Francophone should. It's it's a difficult, complex question. And most politicians have no idea how to deal with it. And bureaucrats have absolutely no idea how to deal with it. But we need to get straight. (laughs) clear, right relations with Indigenous people, those of us who are not Indigenous. So I don't mind prioritizing that. I really don't. I think it's right. I think it's just. And, and I think it's long time should have happened.
2: Mm. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying that. Now, what I'd like to know is, um, I'd like to know a little more about your own personal uh work your your art
3: Mm. that's kind of can you can you share some of that with (laughs) me (laughs) well um sure i can um it's gotten a little derailed in the last few years my practice uh, prior to that before number one before i became a father um which took a lot of my energy like which happens to many many women when they become uh, mothers Um, and their practice not always but often goes sideways or it doesn't disappear but it it's, you know, they're working the double shift and they're, uh, they're doing their work on the kitchen table. Um, that happened to me as a father because my partner had a very high-profile job and I did a lot of the childcare and so on. And then when I came back uh, to live in Canada, we were living in France at the time, um, we, my partner and I, France Trepigny, decided to begin the process that led to this thing that we direct now called Primary Colors which has two basic goals. One is to put Indigenous arts at the centre of the Canadian art system, so it's not an add-on, it's not inclusion, it's not, oh, we'll make space for the natives. It's at the centre. That's what we need to understand. It totally transforms. And then the secondary goal, it's not equally important, it's a secondary goal, is to ensure that uh, the art practices of people from other continents, as I said earlier, are also recognized as important to the Canadian, the definition of who is a Canadian and what is Canada. Uh, So my own practice has gotten sidelined a bit as my roundabout way of answering your question uh, because of this work. It's a a lot of work. um, And we've created created Primary Colours as a forum for the network of artists that we work from coast to coast to coast uh, to uh, fight for these issues, get beyond the access and inclusion paradigms But also the other work that's in some ways much more exciting and interesting, and it is more like artistic work, to unearth the stories, to talk about historically, well, what were these indigenous people doing here before contact? What are their stories and traditions and protocols? that, And and what is the customary work that influences contemporary? Can we dig into that a little bit? And where did that intersect with the first immigrants of color that came here? And so, you know, Fred mentioned the other day his grandfather spoke Chinook. And there's lots of stories like that across the land in eastern Canada, in British Columbia, where I live, of these kind of intersections. And they go on until this day so that we don't have to center everything, neither indigenous folks nor folks of color who are artists, center everything on whiteness. And so you've got a binary, which is the European art system, and then our system, whoever our is we could have conversations in this country that i believe are much more interesting without centering that
2: okay mm-hmm. so
3: my work is like that and I, as for the actual work i do as an artist it's usually uh, performance related um and i try to bring out these uh, these issues in the work that i do and the performances uh, they vary but they they borrow from european traditions but also what i've learned uh, as being a south asian person sometimes stealing a little bit from Indigenous people, borrowing without trying to appropriate, but working, lots of times, working with Indigenous people in the performance so that I can be be influenced by Indigeneity by collaborating with Indigenous people. Um, And I am going to do probably one more major performance before I kind of officially retire as an artist. That's coming up in uh, 2021.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Are you really going to retire?
3: (laughs) Well, I don't know. I know Retire from doing massive performances that require lots of work and lots of money and lots of resources. I haven't applied for a Canada Council grant in a long, long time uh, because I had a successful artistic career and also because I felt it was important to let other folks into the system. But now I'm going to apply (laughs) at my advanced age. I'm going to apply one more time.
2: Okay. Um, Now, let me see. So you just well, one thing
3: I want to say, Laura, okay. just before we leave that. Because you asked me about that period in my life, and it's important to put it on the record that in addition to the people who I brought into the institution to help guide the work and to center me and to, you know, make make sure I was touching the ground as I was you know working within the Canada Council, um, in addition to those people that came on my committees or like Lillian Allen, for example, that I would go and speak to and who gave me so much kindness and mentorship and guidance. There were people like you, and I want to just take a moment to say that, who I never met until a few days ago, but who I knew was out there, that people kept telling me, you need to meet Lenore, um, and who, when I went back to Vancouver one time after being in Ottawa for six months, just to get a little rest from all the craziness of it, And one morning I turned on in the middle of this um, chaotic and vitriolic kind of pushback against the recommendations because one of the recommendations had said that we recommend the council investigate the issues of cultural appropriation um, and in certain cases um, ask for permission. You can't just go tromping through other traditions like it's a smorgasbord. Oh, that's a nice design. I think I'll put that in my work. It was very mild, by the way, Contemporary indigenous artists talk about cultural, but it's just a gentle reminder that you sometimes ask for permission. This was perceived by the entire whites community or most of the white community of Canada, arts community, of censorship, and that debate still goes on oh, as you know to this day. Definitely. Robert Lapage was just implicated in one last year with the Canada piece, and so it was you know really emotionally tough because I was kind of at the center of all this. It sent the council. Powers that be into a work because they didn't know how to defend this. And are you sure you need to say this, Chris. Can't we take it out? And wouldn't it be better if we just wouldn't be controversial? Anyway, so there I am in Vancouver turn on the radio, with the Peter Zowski show. I forget what's called Morningside.
2: Morningside. Morningside. Yes.
3: And there's this woman that everyone had been telling me about named uh, Eleanor Kieshing. And there she is. In a tough situation, maybe you should talk about that for a minute or two. I know it's my interview, but I'd love to hear what that felt like from your side. Defending the the right of indigenous people to have their images.
2: That's right. Um it was a tough situation. I can't remember how many people were there, but uh I was the only one speaking right. up That's against right. cultural appropriation and trying to tell people that it was not a censoring of uh, of imagination. So holy moly, what a situation uh situation to be in. Um um, th- there was one um, woman writer there who Heather Robertson, I think. Right. She said, "Well, why don't you write about me? I wasn't interested in writing about mm-hmm. uh, a what? strange way of uh, a, a, a a white Canadian woman. I'm I was interested in in um, writing about the experiences of our people and our emotion, how how we deal with these mm-hmm. things." And I was writing to give them voice. Mm-hmm. And I was writing for, I mean, what I mean by that is I was, my audience is my people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And to give them voice. Uh, and the fact that other people from other cultures could, um, could appreciate uh, my work was, uh, I considered a bonus. One thing that I, uh, one question I did not get to uh, answer uh, during that interview um, was, a, was a comment from uh, Rudy Weeb, who had uh, done, I think, Almighty Voice or something something like that. Um, and as much as I appreciated uh, his uh, advocacy for, for Native people, he asked me, uh, or he 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 said something to the effect that um, perhaps it is that uh, native people can't write, <laughs> and I was just I was astounded, yeah. absolutely, yeah. and I did not get have the opportunity to to respond. But what I would respond have said, now, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> what I would have said is that. Uh, Perhaps it is that the Canadian public's not ready for these stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think at that time, they were not.
3: Probably that's true. Yeah, I
2: yeah. think that's the truth because Sad the, s- truth. the yeah. stories uh, came out through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission yeah. or the Residential School yeah. uh, Commission. Yeah.
3: And any of the writers that were writing at that time, because there was still a substantial amount of writers writing even back then, were not... They were doing it in spite of the system, not because of the system. So if anybody couldn't write, which I don't actually believe, um, it was because of what, you know, the cultural genocide that preceded this historic moment. Don't talk about it in the abstract. Talk about it historically. But I think um, the many, many amazing Indigenous writers that are writing today have proved Rudy completely wrong. Completely wrong. It's one of the most exciting places in the... The literature of this uh, country, this territory, is indigenous writers.
2: That that is true. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I don't. I don't want to be talking about myself. Because no, please, I need to it's you. Okay. We're conversing. You. Let's say okay. we're conversing. We'll converse. Okay. Now, um, when when I went to university, this was in uh, the late seventies, seventy seven. I went there to uh, do creative writing. And it was so difficult to find any writings sure. by Aboriginal peoples in Canada.
3: Yeah, I'm sure that's true, yeah.
2: Uh, it was really, really difficult. What I was able to find were anthologies. Good. And uh, different Native people had uh, uh, usually one piece in the anthology, mm-hmm. and it just blanketed all, right. of, uh, yeah. all, uh, all of North America, or not North America, but all of Canada, at least. Yeah, The tokens were there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just prior to uh, standing up for, uh, against cultural appropriation, uh, there were a group of us uh, writers, uh, Daniel David Moses, mm-hmm. um, Thompson Highway, yeah, uh, Drew Hayden Taylor, yeah. myself, um, Edna King, I believe. Uh, we started a group called the Committee to Reestablish the Trickster,
3: uh-huh, I remember you talking about this
2: and yeah. the intent of that was to uh foster and promote uh more um aboriginal writing mm-hmm. and we used the trickster to do that mm-hmm. and uh mind you the committee lasted only about uh about 3 years but it and i think that's because it accomplished the work maybe it was yeah. intended to yeah. do because after that, uh, writers uh, uh, right across the country were starting had started to write about their own tricksters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, in that regard, I would like to ask about your tricksters.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a good one. You turned that one against me. Not against me, towards me. Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, I come from a very mixed background and... I don't know, I mean, part of my problem, unlike indigenous people, um, is this question of home and homeland. Um, Actually, my partner, France, who has Mohawk and Quebecois and French ancestry, we do a performance together, which we've done many times around uh, the territory of North America, called Land Landed. Did I tell you about this in conversation? No. And it's, it's, I'm obliquely going to answer your question, but I will get to the point. But the point is around the question of how indigenous people um, in in Turtle Island, that their work, whether directly related or even indirectly related, arises from the land, the land. And by the land, I don't just mean the soil, but the indigenous definition of the land, you know, with the, the, the cosmology, if you will, of everything, the animals, the rocks, the sky, the water, all of it, mm-hmm. the fish. Um, The land is related uh, to the peoples that settled on these lands. The other day I was talking with two or three indigenous people, really kind of trying to dig into what it was like before contact. Because what do I know? I don't know anything. And the only way I'm going to know, it's not written down anywhere, is to listen to the stories. And then the relationship of people to the land, and then from people comes the language, and then from the language comes the culture. And out of that culture, like Lillian likes to say, is where art is. Well, I can't trace that kind of genealogy because I don't really have a land, you know.
2: Mm -hmm.
3: My parents were Anglo-Indians who, although our family was in India for 300 years, uh, always had an ambiguous relationship to being there. Um, Then I was, they left after partition because they felt that uh, things would get violent and ugly for Anglo-Indians who were this kind of intermediary class between the British Raj and and uh, Indian people, um, went to the UK where I was born, actually, in the UK, my mum found the racism to be intolerable. And that's how we wound up in Canada. And so taking it outside of me for a minute, I think that the land landed metaphor is about people who indigenous people, just, let's just call them people, We even just remove the word indigenous, because, as I know, in many indigenous languages, people refer to themselves as the people. The people that were on this territory before anybody else was here have that really, like it's so wonderful. They have that, even no matter how split they are from their culture, they still have this wonderful connection to the land. And even people who live in urban settings, they love to go back to the res or just go out on the territory and make that connection. But for immigrants who come here, and I'm not talking about the settler class, the white, I, I think it was you that said the other day, why do we settler when we, why do we say settler when we mean colonist? I profoundly agree with that. We used to have this great word, colonist, but somehow we don't use it anymore.
2: Or colonizers. Or colonizers, if you want to go
3: all the way. Um, and we've kind of whitewashed it a bit by calling them settlers. But anyway, that's a related, but not the point I'm trying to make. When we get here, there's this romanticizing of the land left behind. Sometimes almost like home becomes a mythic space. And you cook the recipes and you speak the language and you tell stories of the land and the land you've left behind. And yet you have stepped onto another land, the new land, if you will, which I would say most immigrants, not all, most immigrants do not care to understand whose land they're stepping on. That's part of the work we do in Primary Colors is to make that that landed connection. The consciousness. Yeah to, you know, guess what, you benefit from, you're not a settler, maybe, because I kind of object to calling immigrant settlers, but you certainly benefit from settler colonial powers and how this territory is now structured. And so therefore, it's much more complicated than just, I don't have a problem with indigenous, non-indigenous. That makes totally sense to me. And I understand why indigenous people do that. But when you say uh, indigenous settler, what tends to happen is settler equals white. And people of color disappear. We've been, we're made invisible by that binary. I don't like to think in binaries. I think binaries is what gets us in trouble. It's a mm-hmm. very Western way of
2: thinking. Mm-hmm.
3: So to go back to your question of what are my tricksters, um, well, I think I, I borrow tricksters from South Asian mythologies, but I, I'm also very influenced by Western art and I place my work within that context. And I think I'm interested in, like I did in my little two-bit performance the other day,
2: I, I'm uh, which was very, very trickster esque. esque. <laughs> yeah, I don't
3: think of it that way, but thank you for saying yes. that. Yes, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, I'm interested in the relationship. I don't like using the word trickster because I feel like I'm appropriating the the. Oh, no, I
2: don't right. think you're appropriating okay. at all because I think I think uh, each world culture has. Oh, their, absolutely, absolutely. They have their no tricksters. No question about it. Whether so, it's like Monkey King or yeah. or Peacock or yeah. or uh, Renard the 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 fox, fox yeah. No, you're or completely the right. Rascally rabbit.
3: You're completely right. It's a combination of those tricksters, which I could talk more at length about, and and at the same time, kind of um, the mystery, if you will, or the spirituality almost. I'm always nervous with that word too, so I'll leave it at mystery. Uh, the, the relationship between the trickster and the mystery of art production, which is not always didactic. So people can learn. uh, France likes to say sometimes that the work she does in her art practice is not work of the head, it's cardiac. And I can't quite say it as elegantly as that, but that's kind of what I'm trying to say in Mm -hmm. my words. The combination between being a joker, um, being a trickster, if you'll let me get away with it, um, being the two-faced, you know, playing. Uh, remember in Thompson's uh, piece, uh, can't even remember the name. But now the rest sisters, or the tricksters, jumping around, um, and at the same time being very reverent and uh, mysterious about art production, so that it touches something inside of people that is not intellectual, that's embodied. It it moves people in a way that once they're moved, they can't go back. I mean, good art will make you move because you can identify with the characters of the story or whatever. And great art will disturb you. It will take you right out of who you are. And I find, I don't know what it is, but I find like even just listening to your story the other day, that indigenous art practices have the power to do that. And maybe because we have finally reached a point in Canadian history, and I use that word in quotes, (laughs) um, that we've reached the point where more and mer- more Canadians who are non-Indigenous get the importance of both of those elements in Indigenous cultures. They're starting to see this is not making space for these people. This is learning from the incredible knowledge that they have. After all, I'm standing in this territory too. Mm-hmm. Wow! Like that's, a, that's the profound change we need in this country. Not always kind of adding, oh, we forgot the indigenous people. Oh, let's mm-hmm. write a few more lines. You know, we're past that. Yes, yes.
2: Wow. <laughs> do you ever see yourself as a trickster? I mean, you gave our this trickster-esque. Yeah. But do you ever, like, consciously kind mm, of take no. on the trickster persona? No. I, I, I'm, oh, I'm asking you yeah. this because... Um, what i what i understand of uh Anishinaabe culture is that the trickster is always a man
3: oh okay i didn't know that
2: always uh is is always is always a man he was the son of um a mortal woman and the west wind he was a boy who was raised by his grandmother and so um i guess in a way i, <laughs> I guess in a way i always look upon men as tricksters uh-huh,
0: uh-huh.
3: Yeah, I I have to be very frank and answer you by saying I've never thought of myself that way. Um, but So thank you for thinking of me that way. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't don't have a ready answer because I've never really considered it that way. I know that I have this, you know, kind of uh, like you made reference to monkey kings and monkey gods and this kind of uh, annoying characteristic in some ways and settling, but I try to do it through humor usually so that people can accept it and find it. And when I'm at my best, I'm also touching them. I mean, that performance is, it is designed to make people laugh. And I want it to poke at political correctness. Mm-hmm. And I want it to deliberately appropriate other people's images to basically have fun with it and mm-hmm. just make us laugh a bit because we're always so serious in the work that we do. But I have other pieces where it becomes more, I take that somewhere. That's actually excerpted from piece that I do called The End of Art. It's one portion of The End of Art. But that's an interesting insight and I thank you for that and I'll I'll keep, I'll keep tabs on that and try to understand that and maybe talk to other Indigenous people about it. But you know, at the same time, I mean, I don't want to be part of the the wannabe tribe. you know. Oh. Heard, heard those people before. You <laughs> oh, know? yes. Yes, I have.
2: I have. Right. Now, you use a term here that I hadn't heard okay. mentioned uh, in this um, symposium this week. Uh, it's um, political correctness. Right. How do you feel about that term?
3: Uh, I feel ambiguous about it because I'm quite politically correct myself, you know, and I I despise when people just dismiss the, the the term politically correctness. I really despise it. It's a usage of the right wing to just oh, this political correctness and people are snowflakes and oh, don't tell me about indigenous people. It's a dismissive. It can be used as a dismissive term. Yes, um, but I'm ambiguous in the sense because that term actually has roots in the in the Chinese Revolution when people were designated to be politically correct and incorrect and. As you know, there was a lot of purges and a lot of rigidity in who was politically corrected. And it's been kind of appropriated over the decades uh, by so-called progressive people uh, to define how to feel in a given circumstance. And I mean, political correctness comes from somewhere. It didn't just fall out of the sky. Political correctness comes from, um, pick pick an ism, and, and it's easy to see, say from feminism, where women insist to be treated appropriately, to be treated as equals, to be treated with respect, to have their bodies respected, to not have to suffer rape and sexual harassment. To me, that like that's self-evident. And why shouldn't we be working towards a world like that? All of us, all of us men who are doing all the damage. Mostly it's us that are doing it. So to be politically correct means to stand against those actions and to in whatever ways we can as men, support women in the Me Too movement and all the movements that have preceded that going back to second wave feminism. Mm-hmm. So I don't have a problem to say I'm politically correct. None whatsoever, and I will stand up in most forms and defend it. Having said that, the ambiguity comes from, at least in my mind, from the idea that I feel like some of political correct um, belief systems and understandings of the way the world works are becoming super ossified and they're becoming ideologies, and they're becoming, as we talked about this weekend, a number of people brought it up, um, a kind of new totalitarianism, uh, which doesn't allow for anything that deviates. And then you have call-out culture online, where if someone just slips for a second, or even just questions something, they're attacked, and you know, and and there, some of the attacks are more than vehement; they can be violent. And so and so did this, you know, like. Can't think of a specific example, but just where someone's slipped and not used the right pronouns, or said the word "Indian" mm-hmm. instead of "indigenous," mm-hmm. or I mean, a lot of older Indigenous folks use the word "Indian," so or
0: yes, the or the
3: N word, or any of this, and we've right. become we've become too rigid in the tolerance for what we will allow amongst ourselves and among people that we could make alliances with even though we may not agree on every single thing. And that to me is extraordinarily dangerous, cause dangerous for two reasons. One, the powers that be want this to happen. They want everybody fragmented in their little corners. They don't want them coming together in solidarity and alliance because if we ever did, they would clearly see that we're the majority of the world's people and that we would actually make some change. Um, and secondly, it can lead to very dangerous... I mean, we're not there in Canada or even in North America, but it can lead to very dangerous examples of, as it did in China, where people who are not politically correct enough for whatever reasons are purged.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So.
2: You know, the the first time I heard that term was, uh, was here in North America, okay. and uh, actually from... I don't remember the name of the uh of the the writer or the speaker, but it was someone in the United States and uh they used that term because uh they did not want to be polite enough or courteous enough to refer to um black people as black instead of as um uh they wouldn't they'd they'd rather say Indian instead of instead of uh native or, okay. or, or indigenous.
3: So they were using it how then, Lenore?
2: They were using it um they were using it to say that they didn't want to be stifled uh-huh. in what they in in, in their terminology. Well, okay, I understand that. So yeah. if they wanted to call a okay, kid, if they wanted to call uh, a, a native person Indian or red face or Tonto yeah. or um anything like that, then that was their right to do it. They didn't have to be... Politically correct. Polite or politically correct. I see now,
3: yeah. Well, that's kind of what I would call the right-wing or regressive critique of political correctness based upon the right to use the N-word or other words, derogatory words. Um, and, And your right somehow supersedes the damage of what those words create for other people. I think that's nonsense, frankly. I genuinely do. That's the sense in which I'm politically correct. If people don't want to be named a certain way, then we must have the respect to name them in the way they... That's why names change over time. And obviously, if you use the N-word, for example, uh, in a way against uh, people of African heritage, and and you defend that on the grounds that you have the right to say the N-word, okay, you have the right to say it. But just be very aware of what you're doing when you do it. So political correctness, the part of it that I like and ascribe to, is actually basically about respect. Mm -hmm. And it's basically about politeness and courtesy and acknowledging the other person's right to be named as she or he or they choose to be named. That's pretty simple, really, you know. But when that naming turns into a very rigid ideology, it becomes a kind of fundamentalism. And fundamental fundamentalisms of every kind, including indigenous fundamentalisms, and I don't have a problem to say that, uh, are problematic for me because they don't allow uh, for movement, for dialectics, for controversies, for doubts that people might have um, to emerge. And I think there's a way to talk about those doubts and contradictions that a lot of it I have learned from indigenous people that can be respectful. We don't always have to agree, but our disagreements do not need to be expressed in hate.
2: Uh, yes, <laughs> I agree with you. Uh, is there anything else you would like to, you would like to address or tell me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't in know. regards to your art, your artwork, I, I don't your know. vision.
3: Yeah, of all those things, I'd probably like to talk about vision because I think. Not that my vision is so important, really. What I think is important is that we develop a collective vision. And since I work in the arts, I tend to focus there, although obviously I understand it's related to other things and other systems of power that don't have anything directly to do with the arts. Um, But I'd like to begin to, and we do this in the work of Primary Colors, to try to imagine because, you know, Lenore, there's a whole bunch of complex questions out there on the horizon just there that we never get to because we're always arguing about political correctness and race-based rights and special indigenous rights and all this crap that is just so mm-hmm. boring to even rediscuss again, you know, not to imply anything about what you've asked me. but, And I'm not even just talking about this interview, but in general in the art world, you know, Yes. and why so many people who are not white say, look, you know what, I don't want to talk to white people anymore. Uh I've heard many people say, that's enough, that's enough, I'm tired of this. So I'm also tired of it, but it seems like we have to keep doing it. But what's important to me, the vision that's important to me, I'll try to say it this way, is if we were to imagine an arts funding system, by we I mean everyone who calls themselves an artist on the territory called Canada, not who is defined by other people. If you say you're an artist, you're in, which is basically the attitude of CKS. I remember Steve Loft once telling me, because I, I was talking about, well, what are the new criteria going to be? You, you have to figure out who's an artist. This is you know complicated an indigenous terms. He just looked at me and he said, if you say you're an artist, you're an artist. <laughs> that was the end of it. And that's how the section is working. Now, that means you have to somehow rigorously put yourself in front of a jury and survive that. You don't automatically get a grant. But in terms of that first hurdle, in all funding bodies um, of eligibility, that's what it's called, you you self-identify. If you say you're an artist, you're it. I digress for a minute. What I was trying to say was, what does this Territory Canada look like if all the people on it, specifically the Indigenous folks, but also everybody else, gets to practice their work and create their organizations that sustain their work in culturally relevant and specific ways. Stop forcing everything into the Eurocentric model. Just did a consult with an indigenous organization that's trying to indigenize their governance and their ways of working and so on. And big part of the problem is, well, where's your final report? And we need to see this. And These days have to end. They have to end. If we're going to get to a point of real engagement with one another, we have to recognize that there's a multiplicity of practices on this territory. And then we have to ask questions like, so then how does that work?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's changing how one sees.
3: Yeah, well, changing how, well, starting, I always believe it's best to start with, in, when we talk about art, in communities and with practices. So if we look at the practices, this was the second part, I'm getting tired, I guess, of the way I was trying to answer you. Is if we look at the practices, and if there were no art system at all, it just never existed, And we sat down today, you and I and all of our colleagues, what would that system look like? How would we design the Canada Council or the the galleries? How, How would we design them in such a way that they adequately and righteously paid attention to all of these practices? Multiculturalism can't do that. Reconciliation can't do that. The system as it currently is can't do that. So the question then becomes, okay, we're all fighting for change and we want more equity and all these other buzzwords that we use, what does it actually look like? And that would be a really fantastic thing to imagine. Indigenous people that I work with are starting to imagine like a series of regional Indigenous centers Mm
1: -hmm.
3: and starting with maybe five and then building up to 20 or whatever, which would be run by Indigenous people, Mm -hmm. which would have only Indigenous practices in them. They'd have rehearsal spaces and visual arts galleries and We've managed to do that for the European arts. We have quite the system. Yeah, but we ought to do that for indigenous people, and then, and at, at the so the creation, the administration, the collaboration is all like that. And then in the presentation part, that could be presented to all people who live on this territory.
2: Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be an amazing vision? That would be awesome. Yeah. you know, I I was thinking about uh, um, about this this uh, this weekend. Mm. These. Past few days, mm-hmm. we've we've been together uh, as the Wisdom Council, mm-hmm. uh, talking about uh, events that uh, have transpired, and seeing how that it's kind of like carrying a bundle, mm. right? Mm. And and we have been doing that each of us in our way Correct. for these for these decades, and now it's time to put them down. Okay. And and once we do that, then we, I can see that we're reaching for uh, this vision that you you described.
3: I wonder if it's putting down. I don't want to be disrespectful okay. in any way to you. Or if it's not, and I don't even know if I'm going to make an indigenous faux pas here, but I'm uh-huh. going to say it anyway. What if we took our bundles and made a bundle of the bundle?
2: Well, I think that's... That's what I mean. Oh, okay, okay. Like, like letting go. This is this is my story. Letting go of my bundle. Right. Letting go well, of my bundle, right. so it becomes collective yes, here for the for the uh, for the wisdom council. Yeah.
3: Well, that's what kind of what we're trying to do with primary colors too. We don't talk about wisdom councils, but we're trying to bring exactly what you're talking about. If we see it in terms of bundles, all that knowledge, all that experience, and collect it into one big container called. Primary Colors, Premier and we work in both official languages, even though they're both colonial languages, intentionally so, so that we can bridge those gaps. Um, But we're trying to collect it in such a way that it becomes a powerful force. Mm -hmm. And so it can touch those horizons on the one hand, change institutions on the other hand, let the stories out on another hand, and honor history in the four directions.
2: I think that's pretty awesome. And uh, I I guess one last thing. Uh, We're talking about bundles. Uh, and usually, when we talk about bundles, we refer to them as medicine bundles. Okay. So here we are, um, at the behest of uh, Larissa.
3: Larissa Lie.
2: Yes, uh, we've we've brought our bundles together.
3: Yeah. No kidding.
2: Yeah. yeah. And in a way, it reminds me of um, how my father described uh, oral tradition and and how oral tradition works. Okay. Uh, so, uh, with uh, with with the elders in the community, they don't write things down, but they they have good memories. Mm-hmm. Maybe not always good.
1: <laughs> might forget
2: little yeah. uh, little bits and pieces. But when when people get together, they come and they talk, and it's as if they're putting down uh, a puzzle piece mm-hmm. when they talk. This mm-hmm. is this is their offering, mm-hmm. and then someone will look at that puzzle piece and say, "Oh, and." here's my piece, right. and and then they will add their story right. to it. Right. And then someone else, oh, I never thought of that. And they'll come and they'll put that piece there. And eventually you get to see, you get to have a picture mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's the way of remembering. And then, of course, there are the younger generation who are watching what's transpiring here. And uh, so, some of that information and that knowledge is, is uh, f- then for them to remember. I
3: hope you're right about that. That's the part I feel a little unsure about. Because as much as I admire young people and the way they work and they rejuvenate and revitalize the work that we do, I find, and it's, again, be careful of generalities, Chris, a lot of them are not interested in the history. Uh huh. They don't want to know, and maybe some do, and that's great.
2: Well, you know, one thing I learned about storytelling yeah. is that these stories are for certain ears only. Okay, and it doesn't mean that everybody has to hear the stories. Okay. like for example, I, and I can only tell you by telling stories. Uh, I was at a um, storytelling tour in um, Scandinavia. they are just signaling. And I and and my last gig was in te- at the University of Tempore. Okay. It took me three hours and by train to get from Finland to Tempore, and I arrived in the middle of a snowstorm. There were not very many people at the at the event where I was uh, to storytell. And I guess in a way, I, as a an artist, I felt somewhat disappointed. However, um, going by the teachings of storytelling, I, I, I told the stories. I was to give my all when I tell the stories because that's, you know, and then the stories work their own magic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Two things came out of that. Okay. One was uh, that uh, the students who had a, who came to the my storytelling presentation were able to look upon the trickster character and identify their own trickster characters in their own folklore, mm-hmm. and that was What's something. Me, okay, and that's okay. something why uh, that's uh, something that the, their instructor had been trying to elicit from them for mm-hmm. years mm-hmm. and was not able to do. Uh-huh. But there was another thing there that that uh, was my teaching in the middle of this snowstorm. There was a man who drove one hundred and fifty miles to come and hear my stories wow. Wow. and I thought, "Oh, this is what it means. Yeah. Mother nature um, protecting the integrity of the stories she's, she controls the quality of the <laughs> stories. <laughs> So now I know what it means that these stories are not for, and not everyone. for everybody. But, but if okay. you're meant to be there, you will be there. Yeah,
3: I believe that. Yeah, believe that. I do. Yeah. So, but why are you telling this? Because we're ending now. I'm
2: trying to because we're I'm trying ending, to understand what my learning is. Because we're ending now, here. and you were talking about young people. Oh, I see. Okay. and not, yeah. uh, not, not listening. Yeah, and and not everybody. And I was responding, saying that no, not understand. everyone yeah. needs to hear these stories. Yeah.
3: It's not even so much that I believe they're not listening it's more that they're not interested.
2: Uh-huh. You know. And that's okay. To me yeah. it's the same thing as listening. Yeah. Okay, because there me. will be people there, there who will listen. who will. Yeah. Who will. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. this is this gift is for them.
3: And that's good learning for me. Good learning for me. And not never to get high. it's the same thing what you just described of when you do a gig and not enough people show up. Cuz I've played to an audience of 70,000. Uh-huh. And I've played to an audience of one. Yes. And which are the more valuable experiences, Yes, really? which, you know? right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when playing music to 70,000 people, like, I can't even see them. I don't even know who they are. Yes. The only reaction I can get is the rush, you know. Uh-huh. But an audience of 10 is sometimes really amazing. It is. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well,
3: thank you, Lenore. Well,
2: That's thank great. you very thank much. Jimmy Gwetch. And all the best.
3: Yeah, I hope we will encounter one another again. I have an idea of something, but I don't want to spring it right now.
2: Okay, (laughs) and we're finished now. (laughs) Bye-bye. (laughs) Bye-bye.
3: Thank you.